Tonight we continue our study of the great Colossian epistle, the epistle from the pen of the inspired apostle Paul, in which he deals with error that was threatening the church at Colossae, as we have talked about that error being known generally as the Colossian heresy, a mixture of pagan teaching, along with some Judaistic uh, elements. And um, the Apostle Paul counters the Gnostic heresy, that pagan philosophy, that, uh, that Judaistic uh, influence by exalting the Christ as the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as the one in whom and through whom all spiritual blessings are found and through whom all spiritual blessings flow. In the first two chapters that we have just concluded, we might say in effect, as is somewhat characteristic of Paul's writings, in the early part of his epistles, he deals with the doctrinal uh, section, if you will, and then the practical application and the practical uh, teaching comes uh, later. Romans, which we're studying on Wednesday night, is characterized in that way. And beginning at chapter 12, especially of Romans, you have much practical and varied teaching there. Whereas in the early part of the book, he is dealing specifically, as we're seeing now in our study of that book, with the Judaistic uh, uh, influence there and those who were contending that the law of Moses was to be kept and to be perpetuated. And that's characteristic of where we are now in this Colossian epistle as we begin to look at the third chapter of Colossians. And tonight we will look at the first four verses of, of this great chapter where he deals with uh, the practical application, if you will, the logical result of, of uh, understanding and appreciating that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and that all blessings are to be found in him, and that they had been raised with him. And we'll see the significance of that being raised with him. But before we get into the text itself, as we think about the doctrinal emphasis in the early part of this epistle, as well as uh, others of his, uh, of his epistles, it should reinforce for us and remind us of something that's vitally important that is largely forgotten, it seems, today in the religious world, and yes, even in the church of our Lord, and that is that doctrine matters, that doctrine is crucial, because we live in a time where, where uh, there is a de-emphasis, if you will, on so-called doctrine and a much greater emphasis on on just simply being together and being unified in in love, as the expression might be uh, might be given, and to uh, uh, to be close to one another. Doctrine is not so important in the minds of uh, of a great many people. In fact, in the minds of some, doctrine is uh, is uh, repudiated, and it is uh, more of a matter of the better felt than told uh, experience. And really. The fact that what makes us happy will make, uh, will make God happy as well. We've talked about that in times past. But this is an excellent opportunity as we begin chapter 3 of Colossians, as we move from a more doctrinal emphasis, if you will, and that's not to say that this is not doctrine or teaching here in chapter 3, but more practical uh, 
application of the doctrine that he has presented in the first two chapters. But as we do, it gives us an opportunity to be reminded of how important doctrine is. It really is amazing that so many, yes, even in the church today, can justify the de-emphasizing of doctrine when the Bible has so much to say about the importance of doctrine or fundamental teaching, the gospel of Christ and the teaching of, of the gospel. In Acts 2, for example, the first time we see the early church described after they had become the church and had been baptized into Christ, some 3,000 precious souls, what is said of them in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. They continued steadfastly, firm, steadfast in what? In the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Hold fast, hold firm, in other words, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Hold the what? The pattern. The pattern that some, even in the Lord's church today, are ridiculing and telling us does not really exist is the very thing that is repeatedly emphasized upon the pages of the New Testament. The Apostles' Doctrine, the pattern of sound words, literally sound meaning healthful words, spiritually healthful words. Then we look at Paul's uh, first epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. And do we find an emphasis there? In verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And then verse 13, Till I come, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, to doctrine. And then down at verse 16, a few verses later, Take heed to yourself and to what? The doctrine. The doctrine. And when we see the prediction that Paul issues in the second epistle to Timothy at chapter 4, the prediction of the apostasy that would come, what would that apostasy be based upon? A departure from what? Doctrine. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching or doctrine as the King James says. For the time will come, here is the prophetic statement, the time will come when they will not endure what? Here it is again, sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from what? The truth. Tell me that doctrine and the truth are not synonymous. They are the truth, the way, the life, Jesus said in John 14, 6, and be turned aside to fables. These few passages we have cited remind us that doctrine is absolutely crucial and that there is a specific doctrine. Every one of these passages reminds us that when we de-emphasize doctrine, we depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude, verse 3. There is a specific pattern. There is a specific doctrine. I hold it in my hand, specifically the New Testament, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, in a time where doctrine is not being emphasized, in fact, at times being completely discarded, in favor of a better felt than told, let's love one another and be together on some other basis other than the basis of truth mentality exists in our world today. Let us never lose sight of the fact that doctrine has been, is, and always will be absolutely crucial. And that Jesus said, he who rejects me and does not receive my word, my doctrine, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. John 12:48. And with that having been said, we move in this epistle to some practical application of the absolutely important, crucial doctrine that Paul has presented in the early chapters about the Christ, the exaltation of the Christ as the fullness of the Godhead bodily, thus refuting the idea that deity cannot become humanity and that there has to be some, some angelic order through which we seek to approach deity, but that God could not have become flesh. That was the Gnostic idea. And then we have already seen in chapter 2 of Colossians the Judaistic influence where uh, he talked about the fact that because uh, the law of Christ has come into effect and the old law, the law of Moses, has been nailed to the cross, then do not let anyone judge you. Back to verse 16 of chapter 2, in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or what? Or Sabbaths, as we talked about the Sabbath and the Sabbath day having been nailed to the cross along with all the other commandments under that old law. We are under the new law where Christ is exalted and where we, if we're Christians tonight, have died with him and now he reminds these Christians and all of us who are Christians tonight that we have also been raised with him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. If then, if then you were raised with Christ. To what does this refer? It's a clear reference to baptism. That's right. It is a clear reference to baptism. And there is no expression of doubt in the word if. It is, uh, really carries the idea here in, as it is used of since. Since, it's an affirmative. Since then you were raised with Christ. And that is a reference to baptism. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. Remember Colossians chapter 2 at verse uh, 12? Buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism. And there, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now again, he reminds these Christians at Colossae in verse 1 of chapter 3, if then or since you have been raised with Christ. You died with Him, you were buried with Him, you have been raised with Him. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are all clearly depicted in the process by which and through which we become children of God and followers of Christ. We die to the desire to sin where? In our repentance from sin. I determine I'm going to repent. I've, I've had enough of this life of sin. I am repenting. At that point in time, I die to the desire to sin. That's in repentance. I don't die to my sins there because I haven't reached the blood at that point by which and through which I'm cleansed from those sins. 
but I have died to the desire to sin, and I am more than willing to be buried in order to be cleansed from my sin in that watery burial where the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse me from sin. And then I am raised from that watery burial, cleansed by the blood of Christ, raised to life. I'm alive in Christ as a result of my burial with Him. Remember we asked the question based on the expression that is given in back in Colossians 2, in verse uh, 13, he says, Remember he wrote there, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Alive together with him. And we ask the question, where was Christ when he was made alive? Where was he when he was made alive? He was in the tomb. He died on Calvary. He died on the cross. But he was buried in the tomb, and it was while he was in the tomb that he was made alive. We're made alive together with him. We die to our desire to sin in repentance. We are buried with him in baptism, and we're raised together with him. He was raised from the tomb and made alive in that tomb. We're made alive in the tomb of baptism. There's the analogy. We're made alive in the tomb, not before, not after, but in that process where we are buried with him and hidden in the water, as it were. We are made alive, and we're raised with him as he was raised from the dead. We're raised from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. Again, going back to the Roman letter and what Paul affirmed there, of those Roman Christians in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. As we've said... It is so amazing and so tragically amazing that so many in the religious world tonight deny so vehemently the essentiality of baptism when that culminating act of obedient faith is made so clear in Scripture as being absolutely essential to our cleansing from our sins. Nothing really could be clearer to the objective, unprejudiced mind who will study the matter in that fashion. If then, or since then, you were raised with Christ, what are we to do? Well, he says, seek those things which are above. Seek. And literally, it is an intense that indicates keep on seeking. Keep on seeking. And the word seeking indicates a fervent, continual, intense seeking, not a casual thought or two every now and then about the things that are above. And we're not talking about here a, a special relationship in the sense of uh, the earth versus uh, the heavens from the standpoint of up and down necessarily, but we're talking about the, the heavenly, the spiritual versus the carnal versus the earthly. Let's make sure that if we've been raised with Christ, and we have, if we're Christians tonight, having believed in Him, having repented of our sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and been buried with Him in baptism, we have been raised with Him, we're Christians, He's added us to His kingdom, and what are we to continually do from that moment forward? We are to diligently seek what? The things which are above, the heavenly things. In other words, the higher things, the spiritual things. Our complete focus has changed, or has it? Yes, it has, if we understand 
what has taken place in our conversion process. And everything, everything has changed. We are dead to the world and alive to the next world. That doesn't mean that our, all of our relationships, that our earthly relationships end when we come forth from the waters of baptism. We know that. It doesn't mean that our responsibilities, uh, that our earthly responsibilities to family, etc., uh, end there. We all know that. But what it does mean is that our priorities have changed so dramatically that it could be accurately said of us that we left that dead person in the water, as it were, and when we came forth from that watery grave, we came forth as a totally new individual. And in just a moment, we'll see that he says, our lives were hidden. Our lives were hidden with Christ in God. We'll talk about that in just a moment when we get to that phrase. Seek those things which are above. Notice this, where Christ is, even now, where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God, which simply reminds us that Christ died, he was buried, but he rose again, thankfully, and that he ascended just as he said he would to the Father on high, that when he came near the Ancient of Days, as Daniel's prophecy reminds us in Daniel 7, 14, he was given a kingdom, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and that as he sits, as it were, at the right hand of God at this very moment in time, he sits to reign over his kingdom, and that kingdom is the church, the here and now institution for which Christ shed his precious blood and for which he will one day return to take home to the Father in heaven, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. That's where he is even now. And if our thoughts or where they need to be, and our desires are where they need to be. That's where we'd like to be now with him. And that's where I focus my attention as I live the Christian life. From the moment I come forth from the watery grave, that's where I focus my attention, is on the things above, because I want to go home. I want to be, more than anything else, with the one who made possible the unspeakable joy and the unsurpassable peace that I experience as a child of God and as a follower of Christ. I should be homesick every day. Keep on seeking. Keep on seeking. Set your mind, verse 2, on things above, not on things on the earth. And as we said, he's not saying don't ever think about anything that has to do with an earthly relationship anymore once you become a Christian. No, he's saying prioritize prioritize. Your feet are on the earth, but your head is in heaven. You heard the expression, he's walking around like somebody with his head in the clouds. Well, that ought to be true of every Christian. Every Christian ought to be characterized as someone who's walking around on earth with his or her head in the clouds, literally in the sense that we're thinking about and focusing on home, the true home of the soul, because in that watery burial, we left behind the old man of sin, and we're putting on, have put on, the new. In fact, in verses that we will, the Lord willing, study in our future lesson, even next time, we are going to, to hear the admonition from Paul to put to death 
certain things and to put off certain things because we have been renewed, renewed, completely transformed. And that's what he reminds us of here. Why should I seek those things which are above? Why should I set my mind? You know, we talk about a mindset. What should my mindset be? My mindset should be a heavenly mindset, a mindset that's set on things above, not on things of the earth. Why, Paul? He tells us, for you what? You died. You died. You didn't get sick. <laughs> you died. You didn't get gravely ill and get over it, you died, you died. Something has changed. Something completely different now characterizes you as a child of God. It's very reminiscent of Paul's words to the Galatians about himself. Remember in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, remember what he wrote there? He wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. He didn't say, I have been tortured with Christ. I have been persecuted with Christ. Though we know Paul was persecuted, as a follower of Christ, he was persecuted and ultimately died for the cause of Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what happened when he became a child of God, a follower of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. That's death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The old man is gone, he's dead, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's very similar to what Paul is reminding these Christians about their own lives. You died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. When you went down into the watery grave of baptism and you came forth from that watery grave, something very significant had taken place. Your body came forth and the world could see that body still. That same body that went down came up out of that water and the world could see that body, but there was something the world couldn't see that God could at that point in time. And that was the new creature that had been created in Christ Jesus. And that spiritual life is hidden in the sense that the world doesn't experience that and the world cannot know that. Only those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ can experience that and have that complete transformation, that complete transformation of life, a life that is hidden, a life that is hidden with Christ in God. When you came forth, you came forth to God. The body that went in came forth, but there had been a change, and you came forth to God and to serve God from that day forward. And then verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, what a promise that is. What a promise that is, that Christ, who is our what? When Christ, who is the most important person in our life, no. When Christ, who is very significant in our lives, no. When Christ, who is what? 
who is life. He is our life. That's the point. And that's what we have to make sure is a reality with us. Not that Christ is an important part of our lives. That's not good enough. Paul says he is our life. Everything we do centers around him. Satan says, no, you don't need to, you don't need to look at it that way. You don't need to look at it that way. Let him be significant. Let him be important. But don't let him be first, and Satan will be happy. Because Jesus said, we must sacrifice all. And the attitude must be that he is our life. He is our life. That's why the church must be our life, because Christ and the church are inseparable. That's why the church of Christ cannot be important to us. It must be absolutely indispensable to us. And it is the institution for which Christ shed his precious blood. And it is the only institution for which he is coming to take home to the Father. And it is the only institution in which the saved are found. Ephesians 5.23 For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. The body is clearly identified as the church all through the Ephesian epistle, and he's the Savior of it. And why wouldn't he be if he died to purchase it? Therefore, the church must be my life. Not important segment, but my life. As Christ is my life. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way among many ways, as many contend today. I am the truth, not a truth among many truths, not a fluid, changeable truth that changes with your whims and your preferences. And I am the life. There is no life, really, outside of Christ. And once we're in Christ, He is not an important part of our lives. He is our life. He must become our life. And when he does, when he does, as we've said before, that's where the real joy of Christianity is experienced. Not by a Christianity that tries to keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church and makes one miserable and at times making him look like he was weaned on a sour pickle, but being in Christ fully and completely and understanding that he is my life brings a joy and a peace that no one can arbitrarily take away from us. We can sacrifice it and we can give it up by going back into the world, but no one can arbitrarily rob us of that peace and that joy as long as Christ remains our life. And as long as he does, then the assurance is that when he appears, we will appear with him in what? In glory. What kind of glory? A glory that I can't possibly describe from a human perspective. A glory that you cannot possibly describe from a human perspective because it will be grander and more glorious than anything the finite mind can comprehend. But we sure need to spend a lot of time trying, don't we? John wrote these words in 1 John 3, verse 1, beginning. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Stop right there. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. The children of God. Therefore, the world, what? The world does not know us. Or does it? <laughs> the world doesn't know us. Why doesn't the world know us? Because we died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's why the world doesn't know us. As another writer, John, tells us here. Because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What a glorious thought. What a glorious anticipation that when he appears, if he is our life now, he will be our life forevermore and we'll appear with him in glory. But back to John's statement, John says, adding to those words we've just read, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you really want to have hope, true biblical hope, which is desire coupled with expectation, then you're going to have to purify yourself as he is pure. In other words, you're going to have to aspire to the purity that can only be obtained in Christ. How do you do that? By being buried with him, as we've been studying in this Colossian epistle, being raised with him to walk in newness of life, to seek those things which are above and to set your mind continually on those things that are above. Meaning you ignore earthly responsibilities? We've said no, certainly not. But where your priorities are never out of line and where you constantly think about heaven. Do you think about heaven every day? We really should. We really ought to spend time thinking about heaven and going home every day. Those of us who are getting older may have more of a tendency to think about that, especially if we have loved ones who, who have gone on to paradise and ultimately will join us in heaven. That does give us greater incentive, doesn't it, to think about it. But every child of God, from the newborn babe who comes out of that water of baptism, even at the earliest stage of accountability, ought to think about heaven and going home sometime every day. But the only way you can have that hope of being there is by purifying yourself as he, our Lord, is pure. And the only way to do that is by a belief in Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, and to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do those things this very night. And if you need to come home in repentance to your first love, having wandered away and having allowed the world to get hold of you again so that you're no longer seeking and setting as you once did on the heavenly things, but more consumed by the earthly, and that has brought sin into your life that needs to be confessed publicly, we plead with you to do that and to come home so that you can go home as we stand to sing.